So a Christian cake baker gets sued because he won't bake a custom cake for a gay couple. A Christian pharmacist gets fired because she won't dispense a morning after abortion pill. A college Christian ministry is penalized because they won't admit practicing gays to be directors and officers in their campus club. A student body president of a college is fired because he speaks out against abortion. A college professor is denied tenure because he espouses views that run contrary to the politically correct views of his administration. Does it feel to you like we're living through a major shift in our culture? the, The United States never was a majority Christian country, but up until the most recent decades, the Judeo-Christian values were, were understood and accepted and promoted by almost everybody. But now, it feels like we could continue these sorts of incidents on and on. So awareness of this had, has led me to study how God's people have coped in the past with living under circumstances that were hostile to their faith. And I started with the book of Daniel. Daniel, you'll recall, was one of those Jews who was deported from Jerusalem, carried off in exile into Babylon. And as I read the book, I I began to notice a theme that was recurring over and over again. It was obviously an important theme for the exiles living there in Babylon. And I think it's relevant for us who are living in a culture that has turned away from its Judeo-Christian roots. And it is a theme that is especially relevant to us as we are living through this election season, which is now mercifully almost over. I shared some of this with the staff on Wednesday in our staff meeting, and Brian asked me if I would preach it this weekend. At that time, of course, we didn't know who had won the presidency, and it doesn't matter because this is God's word for all of his people in all times, regardless of their political leanings. So let me just walk through Daniel with you, and you can see how this theme develops. In chapter 2, the king of Babylon, King Nebuchadnezzar, has a dream that troubles him. He wants to know what it means. So he has a whole, (laughs) multiple groups of people who all claim to know something about the supernatural realm. They're called magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, and astrologers. And he calls them all in and he says, okay, I had this dream. Tell me the dream and what it meant. And they say, well, king, this is ridiculous. It's impossible for us to tell, tell you the dream. You tell us the dream. We'll tell you what it meant. He says, no, no, you tell me the dream. See, he's dealt with these guys before, and he knows that when he has situations like this, they frequently tell him things that they think he wants to hear. He doesn't want some human made-up thing. He wants to know what the dream really means, so he insists, and they can't, and so he threatens to have them all cut into pieces and their houses turned into piles of rubble. Now, just, just remember that little tidbit and what it tells us about the character of King Nebuchadnezzar, okay? So the king orders the execution of this whole class of people in his empire, and that happens to include Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So when Daniel hears of the execution order, he runs to God, begs for help. God reveals to him the dream and the interpretation. Daniel goes to the king and says, I got it. Here it is. The king's dream was of this huge statue that was made of different materials from the head, body, legs, feet, and all this, and then a rock Cut, not, uh, cut out of a mountain, but not by human hands, comes, smashes the feet of this statue, the whole thing collapses, and the rock grows into a kingdom. Daniel says, this statue represents successive human kingdoms, starting with yours at the head. 
And the rock that smashes it all and lasts forever is the kingdom of God. Well, when God first revealed the dream to Daniel, Daniel realized what it meant, and he said, Praise be to the name of God forever and ever. Wisdom and power are his. He changes times and seasons. He sets up kings and deposes them. So this is the, the, the message, this is the, the meaning of this dream the king had. But the king doesn't seem to learn much from this lesson. So he set up a huge statue, 90 feet tall as I recall, plated with gold, maybe because the gold in the statue he had seen in his dream was his kingdom, and he commands everybody in his empire to worship this statue. Well, Daniel and his three friends can't do that because they worship the one true God, and this gets them in trouble, and Nebuchadnezzar throws Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego into the fiery furnace. You know the story. See? But note again this data point regarding the king's character. But God miraculously rescued them, and the king thought, well, these are important guys, so he promoted them and issued an edict that nobody in his whole empire should say anything negative about the God of these three men. Sometime later, Nebuchadnezzar had another dream, and he goes to these magicians and diviners and so on, and they can't help, so he asked Daniel, who told him what it meant. Daniel says, you know, king, I really wish this didn't apply to you, but it does. Here's what it means. You will be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like cattle and be drenched with the dew of heaven. Seven periods of time will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he wishes. That's the meaning of the dream. Twelve months later, as the king was walking on the roof of the royal pal palace in Babylon, he said to himself, Is this not the great Babylon that I have built by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? The words were still on his lips when a voice from heaven came. This is what is decreed for you. Your royal authority has been taken away from you. You'll be driven away from people. You'll live with wild animals. You'll eat grass like cattle until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he wishes. And so it was. The king went insane, acted like an animal for a period of time. But later, when he had come to his senses and was recounting this experience, he said, at the end of that time, I raised my eyes toward heaven and my sanity was restored. Then I praised the Most High and glorified him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. Well, as the story goes on in the book of Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar's son, Belshazzar, succeeds him to the throne. And at some point in his reign, Belshazzar threw this enormous party for a thousand of his closest friends. And he orders that wine be served in the goblets, the gold and silver goblets that had been taken from the worship of God in the temple back in Jerusalem when his father had conquered that city in, in 586 B.C. And as the people are all celebrating and feasting and they're drinking, the people praised the gods of gold and silver, but not the god whose goblets they were drinking from. Eh? Suddenly, the fingers of a human hand appeared out of nowhere, began writing in the plaster on the wall in the banquet hall. Everybody saw it. They stood stock still. The king is terrified. He calls for the magicians and sorcerers and diviners and so on. So it's the same song, third verse. <laughs> you know what happens. They can't interpret it. 
But the queen remembers that Daniel used to be able to interpret things like this for your father Nebuchadnezzar. You should call him. He calls Daniel in. He looks at the writing and he says, O king, the most high God gave your father Nebuchadnezzar sovereignty and greatness and glory and splendor. God, just parenthesis, God gave your father all of that. But when his heart became arrogant and hardened with pride, he was deposed from his royal throne and stripped of his glory. He was given the mind of an animal. He ate grass like cattle until he acknowledged, say it with me, the most high God is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and sets over them anyone he wishes. But you, Belshazzar, have not humbled yourself, though you knew all this. Instead, you have set yourself up against the Lord of heaven by drinking out of those goblets that were taken from his temple. You did not honor the God who holds in his hand your life and all your ways, and therefore he sent the hand that wrote on the wall this inscription, and here's what it means. Mene, God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed on the scales and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. And that very night, Belshazzar, king of the Babylonians, was assassinated and Darius the Mede took over his kingdom. Are you seeing a theme here? <laughs> Picking up on this? I couldn't miss it. Right? It's amazing. God is sovereign over the kingdoms of men. Sovereign means king, the one in, in supreme authority, the one whose will is always done. And in the book of Revelation, we're told that Jesus Christ Jesus of Nazareth is the king over all human kings, the Lord over all human lords. We see the same thing in another passage addressed to the exiles in Babylon by the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 40 is all about God's sovereignty, and, and here's one section that speaks to our theme today. Isaiah 40, 22. He, God, sits enthroned above the circle of the earth, and its people are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a canopy, spreads them out like a tent to live in, he brings princes to naught and reduces the rulers of this world to nothing. No sooner are they planted, no sooner are they sown, no sooner do they take root in the ground than he blows on them and they wither and a whirlwind sweeps them away like chaff. So what have we learned? Well, God changes times and seasons. He sets up kings and deposes them. The Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and he gives them to anyone he wants. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing compared to him. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the nations, the peoples of the earth. God holds in your hand, in his hand, your life and all your ways. And that's true for the most powerful leader and the most humble of his subjects. God numbers the days of leaders' reigns and brings them to an end when he wants to. All that. So given all that Old Testament background, it's no wonder that when the Jewish scholar, Paul, wrote to the Romans, he would say, there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God because he knew the Most High God is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to whoever he wants. So let me try to make some observations about this theme, this biblical theme of God's sovereignty in light of our recent election. <coughs> Excuse me. 
In the months leading up to our election, I heard some people in our church speak about the election in a way that we th- I think we should only speak about the second coming of Christ. They made it sound like all their hopes for their future, all their hopes for, for everything, hung on who would win this election. They, they talk as though their candidate is the deliverer, the, the savior of the country. He's either going to make America great again, or he's fighting a battle for the soul of the nation. And these people are absolutely convinced that if the other guy wins, the sky will fall. It will be the end of civilization as we know it. Democracy will die. Here's a quote from the reporter Harold just this morning. This is the, the wine line. You familiar with that? I'm watching cable TV, just announced Joe Biden's been elected. I am devastated. Our nation will pay a horrific price for the ignorance that's been displayed by those who voted for him. Mark my words, what a tragedy. People who speak like this are living in terrible fear. Some people have lost sleep over the last few weeks, agonizing over who would win. They cast the whole thing as this great battle between good and evil with spiritual overtones and consequences. Now, this will astonish many of you, but I know people, personally, who wept and were depressed for weeks in 2016 when Donald Trump won. And I guarantee you there will be people who feel that way this year if Biden finally wins. Friends, I want you to hear this clearly. No matter who wins or won the election, the Most High God is sovereign over the kingdoms of men, and He sets over them whoever He wishes. We need to remind ourselves of that every day. So we should not crow about how the right man won or lament that the wrong man is in power. Comments like that are completely inappropriate for the people of God who believe in the sovereignty of God. Do you believe in the sovereignty of God? Then let's not talk like this. But now here's an important caution. Because based on what we just read in Scripture... We have to say that although God sovereignly superintends who our human leaders are, that does not imply anything about the moral goodness of that leader or the rightness of his party's platform. I mean, think about it. Daniel lived under polytheistic absolute dictators. Nebuchadnezzar wanted to chop up a bunch of people (laughs) into pieces and turn their houses into rubble. He put three men into a fiery furnace. Darius put Daniel in the lion's den. (laughs) But Daniel somehow declares God has put these rulers in place. The Apostle Paul lived under the Roman emperors, not known as nice people. They were later terrible persecutors of the church, but he says all these civil authorities have been established by God. God's sovereignty in these things tells us nothing about how good or bad the person in power is. So we shouldn't make it say that either. If your man won, don't conclude that this is a victory of of good over evil. And if your man lost, don't conclude that the forces of darkness are taking over. All we can say for sure is that God is in control and he sets over the nations whoever he pleases. So how should we respond then? If we're believers, we believe in the sovereignty of God, how should we respond to this? Well, I think one thing we should do is relax. Relax in in this wonderful truth that God is in sovereign control. (sighs) Take a deep breath. (laughs) Psalm 118, it is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. 
It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. We have a Savior. We have a King. And He doesn't live in the White House. So let's, let's just practice this. Okay, I invite, invite you to close your eyes. Just direct your thoughts to God. Just recall that He is the Most High God. He sovereignly superintends. Do it right now. Take a deep breath. Take refuge in the Lord. Commit your life and our country to His hands. Tell Him you trust Him. Tell Him you'll follow Him and that you'll work for His kingdom above all else. Amen. Well, God is sovereign in elections. He's also sovereign over cultures. In my lifetime, we have experienced a cultural earthquake on the order of what happens when the tectonic plates of the earth shift and continents move. I mean, in, I was growing up in Baltimore in the 1950s. There was a general consensus that leaders should be Christians, or at least they should be members of Christian churches, because they were aligned with the values of Christianity. So business and government leaders would often be members of churches, even if they didn't really know God themselves, because they said, I, I do align myself with these values, and, and this is good for my business, it's good for my reputation, it shows other people that this is who I am. Right? Even as late as 1976, an evangelical named Jimmy Carter could be elected president. And in December the following year, 77, Time magazine cover was the Evangelicals' New Empire of Faith. Now, fast forward to today when the label evangelical is a four-letter word among many, even among our fellow Christians in progressive churches. We are not esteemed or valued. We are despised. We have moved from a place in the society where we had some, some status, some measure of influence, to a place where, where we are banished from the public square, and our beliefs are rejected outright as harmful to the common good. And while I'm not a prophet, I suspect that this trend will continue on down the road, down the hill. And more and more Christians will be sidelined, ignored, banned, and persecuted for practicing their faith. Well, so I was reflecting on this shift recently, and it occurred to me, this is not the first time in history that God's people have lived under oppressive regimes. <laughs> Daniel and the other exiles living in Babylon didn't have an easy time of it. The three amigos were thrown into the fire, Daniel was put into the lion's den, and the book of Esther details how the Jews were despised in Babylon and would have been exterminated like the Nazis tried to do to them had it not been for Esther's brave intervention. In the New Testament era, the Christians were considered atheists by the Romans because the Christians wouldn't worship all the gods and goddesses in the Roman pantheon. And the Jews thought of them as such a dangerous cult that they threw them in jail and killed Stephen. The time of the Reformation. Just a few weeks ago, we sang in this service the, the song, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. And there's a line in that song that says, Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still, his kingdom is forever. And as we sang that, I thought, oh my gosh, 
Martin Luther lived that. Martin Luther wrote this song. He was living in a, in a time when his goods, his family, and his life were at stake because he was holding to the truth of Scripture. <laughs> we, we Christians in America are chafing under this new cultural reality that our religious rights are being trampled on. And, and so many Christians are, are, are incensed about this. We're somehow offended uh, but we know nothing of the hardships and persecution that our forefathers and mothers suffered for their faith. We whine and complain about how unjust we're, us unjustly we're being treated, and to be sure it is unjust, but it's nowhere near what our brothers and sisters are going through in places like Nigeria. You know what's going on in Nigeria? Boko Haram and Fulani tribesmen, Muslims, are attacking Christian villages, burning them to the ground, killing all the men and boys they can find, and kidnapping the girls and forcibly marrying them to Muslim men. Christians in Pakistan and India supposedly have constitutional right to practice their faith, but they are regularly harassed, persecuted, imprisoned, and even killed by Muslim and Hindu extremists. And our brothers and sisters in North Korea are living under the most oppressive, oppressive regime in human history. We need to put our situation in perspective. We really do. But even when we acknowledge all that, even when we can tell ourselves, okay, okay, we don't have it so bad, it's not as bad as it was in other times, it's not as bad as it is in other places, we can still admit that our culture has shifted and will continue to shift in the wrong direction. So what do we do? I mean, we are living in a cultural exile in, in Babylon, so to speak, right? A and we need some guidance, and there's guidance for us in the Scripture as we read about the experience of our brothers and sisters in the faith who went through that real exile in Babylon. Here are four points of many, many that could be made. Here's what God said to the exiles in Jeremiah 29. <coughs> This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. And I, I hear where it says twice, God is the one who carried them into exile, not the Babylonians, right? And I can't help but wonder if it feels like we are in a Babylonian exile in our own country, is it possible that God has led us to this place for his purposes? Pray to the Lord for it, for the city where you are, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. So we're to go about our business, raise our families, work hard, en engage in all the institutions of the society, the business and arts and education and so on. Help, help it prosper, because if it prospers, we too will prosper. Work for the good of our society. God spoke through the prophet Isaiah in, in Isaiah 40. Why do you say, O Jacob, and complain, O Israel? You say, my way is hidden from the Lord. My cause is disregarded by my God. And his answer is, do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary. His understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord or wait on the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings of eagles. They will run and grow weary, not grow weary. They will walk and not faint. 
we whine and complain because we don't enjoy the favor in the society that we once did. We complain that we're being persecuted. Our religious rights are being trampled on. And we conclude, God isn't paying attention. God, you've disregarded us. We're saying just the same thing those exiles did then. It wasn't true then. It's not true now. God is still there. He's waiting for us to turn our attention to him. Focus on him. Hope in him. Wait for him. Right? Sometimes we'll be able to soar, sometimes we'll run, sometimes we'll just put one foot ploddingly in front of the other. But if we will fix our eyes on things that are not seen, not the things that are seen, he will enable us to keep going. Yeah. Here's another word from Isaiah 44. Is there any God besides me? No, there is no other rock. I know not one. All who make idols are nothing, and the things they treasure are worthless. And then he has this very interesting section where he, he describes a, a blacksmith who, who hammers metal into the shape of an idol and then he describes a carpenter who takes a log and measures it and cuts it and, and cuts an idol out of it and, and at the end of this section he says it's really hilarious. Half of the wood he burns in the fire to cook his meal, from the rest he makes a god. <laughs> it's hilarious. <laughs> it's all about the utter foolishness of idolatry. And it's so much easier to see the foolishness of idolatry when the idols are physical objects like they were then. But we have idols too. Our idols are more abstract. We have lots of things we rely on for our sense of security, our sense of well-being, our shalom. Here are some things that I see, and, and some of these tempt me to worship them. Comfort. How do you react when the temperature in your home falls more than two degrees below what you like? <laughs> Gotta fix that. <laughs> uh, pleasure. Mine is a hot shower every morning. I don't get that, I'm a crab. Money. How much time do you spend thinking about or managing or fretting about your money? Power and influence. Now, this is a dangerous one. Uh, you do know, don't you, that some people serve in churches so as to promote their own agenda, so as to have influence over other people. Mm -hmm. A particularly dangerous expression of this idol is political power. Sadly, some Christians have confused the church with the state. They've come to think of Christians as a political block and sought to gain as much political power for their block as possible. Friends, this is always a disaster for at least two reasons. One is because the church always becomes more like the state. The church never influences the state to become more like the church. The church begins to take on the values and the methods of the state, and that's never good for us. And the other reason this is not good for us is because it takes our eyes off the reason for which Jesus created the church in the first place, which is to make disciples of all nations. So, political power is a dangerous idol. Here's another one. The popularity and the approval of other people. How much do you need the approval of other people? Do you ever not say something because you think what you were going to say would not be approved? I know you do. <laughs> and kids and grandkids, 
I know grandparents whose whole lives revolve around their grandchildren. In our leadership training class yesterday morning, Brad Leach said, the way you know something is an idol is by looking to see what else you're willing to sacrifice to it. That's a great definition. So what's most important to you? Is there anything in your life that's a close second in your affection to Jesus Christ? He said, anyone who comes to me and does not hate his father, mother, wife, children, brothers and sisters, and even his own life cannot be my disciple. He doesn't want any close seconds in our hearts. So ask God to show you if there's something that competes in your heart with your loyalty to him. There is only one true God. He says, I am the first and I am the last. Apart from me, there is no God. And I think that life in this cultural Babylon is intended to help us see the foolishness of worshiping the cultural idols that are all around us and turn us back to the one true God. And then finally, we can pray. Jesus instructs us to pray that the Lord's kingdom would come and his will be done on earth as it is now being done in heaven. We're not passive victims of this earthquake taking place in our culture. We are active participants in God exercising his will, his sovereign will on earth. And it's just because God is sovereign that it makes sense for us to pray to him because he's the one who can change things. God uses our prayers as his means to accomplish his ends on earth. So let's pray. I'll give you just a few moments of silent prayer. Pray about anything that that you've heard this morning, anything that the Holy Spirit has said to you. Let's just take a moment here. Would you join me in the Lord's Prayer? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.